You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hello and welcome to a new episode of 1947, The Road to Indian Independence, a special podcast series presented to you by the Hindustan Times to mark India at 75. The early 1930s were a turbulent time in British Indian politics as the civil disobedience movement intensified and then faded the british embarked on a political exercise to diffuse nationalist aspirations in a way that would help the empire retain absolute political control but with a degree of reform this manifested itself in the round table conferences held in london the mahatma participated in one of them It manifested itself in the landmark Government of India Act 1935, a new constitutional governing arrangement that would have an impact on India's polity even after independence. And it manifested itself in the 1937 elections, elections in which the Congress participated and Jawaharlal Nehru emerged as a true mass campaigner. But each of these measures had both unintended and intended consequences. Each of these measures generated mixed responses among nationalists. Why did the Congress have an ambivalent attitude to the round table conferences? What was the 1935 act? What did it do? What were its implications? And what happened in the 1937 elections? Did it give Indian nationalists a sense of what it was to run an administration or did it deepen the Hindu-Muslim fault line within the movement? Or did it do both? To discuss these questions, I'm delighted to welcome to this episode of the podcast Arvind Elangovan, the author of Norms and Politics: Sir B. N. Rao in the Making of the Indian Constitution, 1935 to 1950. Welcome, Arvind. Thank you, Prashant. Thanks for having me. Arvind, take us back to what was going on in the colonial mind in the early 1930s. The Dandi March had taken place. The civil disobedience movement had posed a challenge, but clearly not enough to dislodge the empire. At this time, the British embarked on convening a series of roundtable conferences. Why? Uh, by this time, of course, Gandhi had made his presence felt. So not just in South Africa, of course. You know, as we all know, he started his political career there, and then by the time he comes to India, it's during the First World War, just about, and then he becomes a mass campaigner, the first truly big mass campaigner in Indian politics. But at the same time, what the colonial government does. is it's trying to figure out how to deal with mahatma gandhi and how to deal with nationalism and and deal with the fallout of popular mobilization and at the same time how to also introduce mechanisms and introduce um institutional mechanisms we should say to regulate the colonial affairs to such in such a way that some aspect of nationalism can be Uh, assuaged right so it was so constitutionalism really comes into indian politics uh really as a way to counter the the appeal and and counter the 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 mass mobilization appeal that gandhi had and also to 
uh, as, as some would say, to train the Indian nationalists in the art of government, right? And I'm using the quotes, uh, train deliberately because, you know, that, that is contested and that is maybe something we can talk about later too. So basically, so by the time we have, we come to the 19, the late 1920s, what happened was Britain had already introduced a series of constitutional reforms, so-called constitutional reforms, and each of these reforms from the 19th to the early 20th century progressively incorporated more and more Indians in the colonial administration, right? So Indians were becoming a part of this colonial government, even as they were leading a nationalist movement outside the legislature. Um, so by the time we come to 1929, we it's already 10 years past the 1919 Reform Act that the government had passed. It was not a very satisfactory one. People were very disappointed, and th that is on the Indian side with the way the act did not really help any of the nationalist aspirations. So it was time for a review in any event. So that's when Simon Commission was appointed. Now, the problem with the Simon Commission was it was an all-white commission. There were no Indian representatives. That led to a series of agitations. So in the light of all that, in that contextual background, the Viceroy Irwin basically decided that uh, in order to take this further, we have to convene a set of discussions, but it's preferable to do it in London instead of in Delhi or anywhere else in India. And that's how the roundtable conferences comes to be. Yeah, so that's where the three roundtable conferences, as we know, came. So what happens in these roundtable conferences? Yeah, so uh, these roundtable conferences, uh, they were basically meant as uh, a hearing ground, as it were, um, a conference where uh, different political interests from India were heard, basically to determine whether or to what extent the new legislation can incorporate the representation of Indians in the colonial government, right? Uh, because by now, uh, Congress, of course, claimed to be the major political party, but it was also clear there were other political parties and there were other political interests. There were other political constituencies. I mean, chief among them being the Muslim League. Ambedkar, of course, was the re leader of the so-called backward classes. Uh, you had the princely states. So the question really was how to incorporate all these elements in a future legislation, right? So which is where um, the first roundtable conference, because of political differences and because of the civil disobedience movement that Gandhi had already launched, Congress decides to boycott the first roundtable conference, but others do uh, attend. So Ambedkar attends, um, moderate liberals like Tej Bahadur Sapru and Emma Jaker attend. Uh, princely representatives of the princely states do attend. And there's a lot of talk, but nothing really concrete comes out of it. Um, second roundtable conference, thanks to the what we now know as the Gandhi-Urban Pact, um, Gandhi agrees to attend the second roundtable conference, but as the sole representative of Congress, nobody else goes with him. Um, and then the third, and that's where, of course, the second is where the Gandhi-Ambedkar debate happens in London during the conference. And then the third, of course, again, con Congress does not go. Uh, it's basically others who go. Again, Ambedkar goes and Tej Bahadur Sapru attend. Um, but nothing really, again, concrete comes out of it. But all in all, the conferences were a way for the colonial government to hear the different representatives 
and arrive at some kind of a decision as to what could be the shape of a legislation. So towards which they introduced a white paper, they produced a white paper as they call it, and which then becomes the basis of the legislation for the 1935 Act. I'll just uh, go back to what you said. Do you think this was a genuine attempt by the British to take into account the diversity of political aspirations in India? Or was it an attempt to invite multiple groups to weaken Congress's bargaining power? (laughs) That's a great question. You know, one can look at it both ways, right? So if we look at it from the nationalist point of view, and again, I want to be careful here distinguishing different kinds of nationalism that already existed at this point. I mean, one thing that becomes clear, even when you just look at the history of the party, the Congress party, it becomes clear that there are so many divisions within the Congress party at this point. I mean, you had the Gandhi, Nehru, Patel axis, if you want to call it Prasad, right? And of course, Azad. Uh, But then you also had other so-called right-wing Congress Uh, nationalist leaders as well. And and then there are all these interesting reports where in some of the provinces it was not at all clear who was a congressperson and who was not a congressperson. So Congress itself was quite divided at this point. And then you had not to mention the other political parties. So really from a Congress point of view though, it always seemed to the Congress leadership that every effort that the colonial government was doing to include others, non-Congress people, was an attempt to divide the nationalist movement. Whereas from the point of view of other marginal, well, marginal and just in terms of numbers, political parties and political interests, it seemed good on their side that the colonial government was keen in hearing their interest, right? So, so which is why for me, I mean, this is an interesting point you raised because this is where constitutionalism becomes very interesting, right? And, and this is something I can talk about more too later. Uh, on the one hand, it, it, it actually gave space for a diversity of expressions. But at the same time, it worked against the goal of nationalist unity. So constitutionalism really comes in as this um, Janus-faced mechanism in colonial India. It, it had both, right? So on the one hand, it seemed like it was representing diversity. On the other hand, it was working against the goal of nationalist unity. So it did both. So in that sense, yeah. So building up on that, the British eventually came up with the Government of India Act. 1935. What was this act? What was the broad kind of structure it proposed? And how was it a departure from the past? Right. So after all these discussions, white paper, then they introduced the legislation. And and there was a, by the way, there were a lot of debates in the House of Commons uh, about the 1935 Act. So in a way, just it's, it's interesting to just take a step back and to just think about the number of hours spent by the colonial government, uh, by the British, basically, British Parliament, in just debating the 1935 Act. They spent a lot of time doing it, and they came up with this legislation. Um, Yeah, so basically it was an quote-unquote improvement from the 1919 Act. So the 1919 Act introduced what we 
you know, again, know as Diarchy, where for the first time, Indians could run some parts of the provincial government, but not all parts. So that was the 1999, right? So let's say there are five ministries, three ministries could be run by the Indians, the two ministries would be run by British appointed officials. But in 1935 Act, the most significant thing that they did was they introduced what is called the principle of provincial autonomy, right? So provincial autonomy basically means that provincial governments could now be run by Indians. And they could be run by Indians, they could be um, Indians who are elected by the people of India. So for the first time you had what is called democratic element, a complete democratic element. Um, Although franchise was restricted, but, but that's a different story. Not everybody was eligible to vote. But for the first time, provincial autonomy meant Indians could run their own government. And at the federal level, what it introduced very significantly was it still retained, the Viceroy still had all the powers. I mean, there was really uh, no change in that. But the 1935 Act proposed a federation of some kind of an arrangement between the British Indian provinces and the princely states. Uh, it was an attempt to bring the two disparate elements together in some kind of a federation where there could have been some kind of federal government. But as we know, that did not really work out. That part of 1935 Act never really materialized. What materialized, of course, was the 1935 Act in the provinces where provincial autonomy was introduced. You know, I do want to get into what provincial autonomy meant in the elections. But before that, I want to go back to something that you alluded to, the famous Gandhi-Ambedkar argument, because this was also a period when the electoral system was being discussed. What was the Gandhi-Ambedkar argument and how did it finally play out? Uh, yeah, so at, at a fundamental level, the argument, there was, a, of course, a political argument and then there was a specific electoral argument, right? So, so the political argument, of course, was Gandhi claiming that the interests of the Dalits, the Dalit community, is best served by somebody like him, by upper caste Hindus who have to basically atone and reform the caste system within Hinduism. Right. I mean, and that's the basic philosophical slash political argument that Gandhi was making, which Ambedkar completely disagreed with. Uh, for Ambedkar, I mean, the famous book here, of course, is The Annihilation of Caste, where he basically argued that there is just no way that the caste system as it exists and as it works could ever truly reform itself in order to cater to uh, the basic life dignity of the Dalits, right? So, so that was the basic political philosophical argument. Now, electorally, what that translated to was just like the Muslim League was granted separate electorates in 1909, I want to say, Ambedkar was arguing for separate electorates for Dalits so that they could, Dalits could elect their own representatives in a future government body. And Gandhi was vehemently opposed to the separate electorates. And he basically called it an attempt to divide Hinduism and this is not the way to do it. So at the heart of it really is a, it's a very interesting problem that Gandhi-Ambedkar debate reveals to us, which is for Ambedkar, 
the basic idea was the only resolution for the caste problem that he saw at that time was to be political and constitutional. Whereas Gandhi saw it, the only way to resolve this problem is social and not political and not constitutional, right? So that was the basic fundamental divide between Gandhi and Ambedkar. And the government does award separate electorates based on Ambedkar's demand. Um, but Gandhi takes objection and very famously goes on a fast unto death in, uh, in Pune, right? And uh, that's when Ambedkar is then forced to reconcile and the Gandhi, and what we now know as the Gandhi-Ambedkar Pact, the Pune Pact. Basically, it uh, said that Ambedkar will give up the demand for separate electorates, but what will happen is in different constituencies. I mean, I mean, the number of constituencies where the Dalits could be elected from were increased. And there would be primary elections which would only be voted by the Dalits so that their interests are represented. And uh, so that way, notionally, the number of seats available for the Dalits, the argument goes, was much more than what was originally awarded in the communal award. Uh, where the separate electorates were granted. So that's how it got resolved. And of course, Ambedkar famously later on would not be happy with the Pune Pact. So we are now in about 1935-1936. The British have held the roundtable conferences. They have come out with the Government of India Act. There has been this debate between Gandhi and Ambedkar. An agreement on some kind of electoral system is arrived at. And then we have the provincial elections. Now, the Congress institutionally, till this point, refused to participate in elections, even though factions within the Congress did. What changed and why did the Congress decide that it was time to participate? Basically, I think what really happens is in different provinces, there was really a great demand for participating in the provincial elections, even among mainstream Congress people. So someone like Rajagopalachari, for instance, uh, from Madras, um, Madras, interestingly, always had a longer history of participating in these local elections. Somebody like Satyamurti in the Madras province basically urges and, and leads a movement, as it were, to ensure that Congress participates in these elections. And then it was not just to participate, but if they win, and they kind of knew they would win, to run the ministry as well, to run the government as well. So there was a great movement for that. So... Likewise, in different provinces, there was a great effort by several people, the, the, the different constituencies of the Congress, which really wanted to participate in the elections. But ultimately, I would say there was just too much pressure um, on the Congress party, on the Congress leadership to participate in these elections and to run the provincial government, even though they all recognized that there was a contradiction in, inherent in it, right? So on the one hand, you're leading a popular movement against the colonial government. And on the other hand, as per the 1935 Act, you will become a part of the colonial government. <laughs> so, so are you going to fight against yourself? I mean, that's the kind of position they were being put into. Um, but, but I think really what changes and again, the literature is vast in this, um, but it really seems to be that the pressure was just great enough for Congress to say that, okay, we will uh, participate 
in this. And retrospectively, we can also say that, well, it would also give a great um, boost to the claims that Congress truly represents India if they could win the elections. So, so that's interesting that it was pressure from below in some ways that led the Congress leadership to participate. What happens in the elections? Take us through the campaign, take us through the results. Uh, does the Congress do well? How does the league perform? Uh, and, you know, what do those first elections mean for the nationalist movement? Yeah, so there were, so as per the 1935 Act, there were, I believe, 11 British Indian provinces right, uh, where these elections were held, out of which Congress wins outright majority in five of them. And just like today, as you would have, you know, if you win a majority, you form the government, and they did. And these were Madras, Bombay, United Provinces, Central Provinces, Bihar and Orissa, right? So, so these are the provinces where Congress was able to form the government and they won a majority. Uh, there were two other provinces where did, they did not win an outright majority, but they were able to form coalition governments. And, and that was a Northwest Frontier and Assam, right? Now, uh, the Muslim League, interestingly, did not do so well in the 1937 elections. Um, so, yes, they did win uh, some of the seats in provinces like, say, uh, Bengal. But what really happened was there were other Muslim groups, as it were, independents, like, like in Punjab, it was the Unionist Party. Um, they won most of those seats. So the Muslim League really did not. So the only, the only place where they could form the government was in Bengal initially as a coalition government uh, with the Krishak Praja Party, I believe. Um, but that government falls uh, when Muslim League withdraws and then the Congress with, forms another coalition government in Bengal. So really the Muslim League does not do uh, that well. But overall, so the election campaign itself was very interesting. I mean, so one thing that happened was, of course, the electorate enlarged. So the franchise qualifications were reduced from what it was in the 1919 Act. So uh, one thing that clearly happens in the campaign is Nehru truly emerges as a mass leader in this sense, right? So he sees the campaign not as a campaign for 1937 elections per se, which of course it was, but really as a mass contact program. So there are reports where, uh, where he goes and he's really happy with the size of the crowd. You know, there were hundreds and thousands of people that he was meeting, that he was talking to in campaign speeches. Uh, one thing that, again, Visalakshi Menon's book documents is really uh, how um, in, in, in the, and she talks about the United Provinces, how in different uh, parts of the state, in different parts of the cities, you know, marketplaces, fairs, uh, all these places became places for a Congress campaign speech. Right. Um, and then she also documents how students participated in uh, large numbers in these elections. So it really generates a lot of interest uh, among, certainly among the urban populations, but reports are that also among the rural populations, um, because it is for the first time in a, in a, in a big way um, that politics, as it were, gets um, 
people experience it. That is the institutional politics, we should say, um, that people experienced in 1937. So the Congress campaign was, uh, by and large, uh, by all accounts, quite successful at this time. And then how does the Congress do in office? Because this is the first whiff of power. Do they uh, end up reforming the administration? Do they get entrenched in the corrupt ways that we know power operates? So. And how do they deal with the question, with the Muslim question? And does it leave minorities with a sense that this is going to be a majoritarian administration? So I think both on the governance element as well as an intercommunity ties, how do provincial governments led by the Congress perform? Mm-hmm. No, that's a great question. Um, and again, it's, 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 it's an important question. Uh, because it, it it again has implications on in in of course politics on constitutionalism and what happens afterwards right leading up to the moment of 1947 now again menen's book uh, there are others too who wrote on bombay and bihar uh, the story is somewhat mixed right so on the one hand <laughs> there are and i i think i saw this i, I read this in some of the files I was looking at in National Archives in Delhi as well, uh, where there was a lot of, I would say, friendliness between the governor's office and the minister's office. Um, so the kind of antagonism that characterized Congress relationship with the British on the streets was not really present when they were running the government and when they had to work with the governor, the same governor against whom perhaps they would have led an agitation a few years ago, right? So so there was a lot of gatherings, there was a lot of get-togethers that ministers and the governors participated in. So, so to that extent, there's a lot of account of how it really did not make much of a difference. But then there's another side of the account too. And again, Menon documents it, Christopher Baker documents it, as diverse provinces as Madras and UP, where they were able to release political prisoners, for instance. So a number of people were incarcerated uh, during the civil disobedience movement. And there was a lot of negotiation and a lot of, after a lot of negotiation, political prisoners were released under the Congress government. Land reform legislations were passed. And in the United Provinces, a lot of rights were given to the tenants as opposed to the landlords, of course, who had their own political party and who contested the elections and were successful in securing a few seats as well. So there was definitely land reform legislation that passed, at least the United Provinces passed it. And again, with mixed results, right? I mean, they, they tried to take care of the debt situation of the tenants. And and, and so debt management was uh, one of those things that they tried to do. And, and again, partly successful. So in different ways, uh, the Congress governments were able to introduce reforms. They were able to introduce measures to mitigate the sufferings of the people, as it were. But again, they only had two years to do it, right, as we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by the time Second World War happens, Congress takes the unilateral decision to withdraw themselves from the ministry, so all the Congress ministries resign. But as far as, um, yes, the minority question is concerned, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is, it it really 
changes the relationship for the worse in a sense uh, between 1937 and 1939 of course uh, venkat dulipala has documented this the historian uh, has documented this uh, wonderfully in his book uh, where basically it becomes very clear to jinnah it becomes very clear to the muslim league uh, that any future government is necessarily going to be dominated by the congress party in the way it happened during the selection and afterwards so that really creates a great element of um, uncertainty in the political landscape as it were which leads which leads to as we know uh, renewed calls uh, for protecting the muslim interest and of course the pakistan resolution gets passed in 1940 which again is very interesting i mean 1939 war resignation 1940 the pakistan resolution yeah so in that sense i would definitely argue that the 1935 act really plays an important role in altering the political landscape and the relationship between the majority and the minority yeah you know looking back how would you place the legacy of the 1935 act in the broader arc of india's nationalist movement i mean you've written about this but some of the elements were to stay on and in, in independent india's constitution and the political impact that you just described was was enormous true uh, so i think the biggest legacy of the 1935 act of course is the indian constitution right so as we know the scholars of course differ to what extent is how much of 1935 act is in the indian constitution and the answer is it's it's a quite a large measure of the 1935 act is in the indian constitution one thing that the 1935 act effectively does is it makes the idea of the state the organizing principle of not just the colonial government which in some ways it, it always was but also of nationalist aspirations right so so the state becomes this very attractive entity that that was one of the important consequences of the 1935 act as such the, the real question after 1935 really became who controls the state and how do we control the state muslim league decides and realizes that muslim league can never control the state in the way it politics and constitutionalism was evolving right and and that of course has its own consequences eventually leading to you know partition so in that sense the the legacy of the strong state that we have in the current indian constitution can be traced to the 1935 act as well um in terms of the administrative state details that appear in the indian constitution uh, one reason why the indian constitution is long is because it has all these details about how up to the local government everything has to be handled right everything has to be organized that is a legacy of the 1935 act um so the 1935 act also i mean if you just look at it it's, it's a long piece of legislation and it has all these details of administrative state built into it of course the 1935 act does not have a list of fundamental rights which the indian constitution does but as we all know the indian constitution has a list of fundamental rights but it subjects it to restrictions of what is it law and order public morality and health and so on and so forth <laughs> right so in the way that the state makes a huge appearance in the 1950 constitution a lot of it can be traced back to the 1935 act 
right? So, so, so these are some of the big ways in which, and of course, there are minor provisions also, which get, becomes a part of in the way anything that is not dealt with is under schedules, right? So we have schedules of the Indian Constitution. Schedules were there even then in the 1935 Act. In all these ways, it, it really makes an impact directly in the Indian Constitution. Secondly, I would say it is really politics gets institutionalized through the 1935 Act. Now, up until the time you had Indian politics, of course, you know, through subaltern studies, we know we have different kinds of politics that was participated by by the people themselves, independent of the institutions. But in terms of really institutionalizing politics and the compelling need to translate political interest into an institutional interest and a compelling imperative to translate politics into constitutionalism, that really happens under the 1935 Act in a big way, right? So for the first time, Congress had to go and say why they would be the better representatives of people, why they would be a better representative of nationalism, why is it that Britain needs to relinquish India? Now, these are all arguments that, of course, Gandhi had made, popular Congress nationalism had made, but for the first time, it had to be articulated in an institutional sense, in a constitutional sense. And so that really, again, transforms the arc of politics, as it were, right? So which is why after 1940, and again here, if we look at uh, the volumes of transfer of power documents, uh, a big question that emerges in all those seven or eight volumes, actually more than that, all those volumes are really how best to constitutionally articulate your political interest. And that is a big legacy that happens after the 19. 19- um, 35 Act. And also very interestingly, if if ever there was a moment when constitutionalism, such as the one you know represented by the 1935 Act, reveals itself to be a critic of both colonialism and nationalism, it was the moment of the 1935 Act. So what I mean by that is, even though Britain introduced the 1935 Act, when it time came to implementation, they had a tough time and actually conceding provincial autonomy. Even though there was provincial autonomy, they were trying to regain as much control as possible within provincial autonomy. So here you had a very interesting case where the colonial government was participating in this very liberal, was introduced as liberal constitutional reform, so-called liberal constitutional reform, and yet was finding it very hard to stick to the principles of provincial autonomy. Likewise, nationalism too, in the way Congress opposed the act, then when Congress formed the ministry, they wanted to wreck the act from within. They also found that constitutionalism as a language was not really gelling with their rhetoric of nationalism, right? I mean, this is something which we go back, going back to what we were discussing earlier, is constitutionalism on the one hand came as an instrument of representing a diversity of nationalist interests, but everybody quickly realized that it was also working against the goal of nationalist unity, right? So. 
I would argue that an important legacy of the 1935 Act is really a moment for us to recognize that constitutionalism, as it emerges in colonial India, never really appears as a representative of this mythical idea of we the people. Right? What it always, it was introduced and it comes to India as always a representative of the interest of the state in which different groups of people participate in it. So that tension between the idea of we the people and the idea of the state that gets inaugurated in a big way in 1935 Act, I think leaves a lasting legacy in the post-colonial period. Thank you so much, Arvind, for taking us through the turbulent 1930s, but also the transformative 1930s. The intersection of colonialism with nationalism, with constitutionalism, with India's social cleavages and communalism uh, left, as you described, a long-lasting legacy. And, and the reason I think it has been fascinating to go into some of what many may consider arcane details of that period is because this is what inaugurated a period of electoral competition. It inaugurated a period of identity politics merging with electoral competition. And it gave the basis, as you said, for the Constitution of India. Arvind, it's been fascinating to have you. And we hope that our listeners will continue with us on this journey as we explore India's road to freedom. In the next episode, we look at the Second World War and the Quit India Movement. Stay with us. Thank you. This episode of 1947 Road to Indian Independence was conceptualized and hosted by Prashant Shah. It was produced by Deepthi Ahuja. The sound design and editing is by Amrinder Singh. For more updates on this podcast, follow HD Smartcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to hdsmartcast.com. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.